All right, well, good morning. Let me go ahead and open us uh, with a word of prayer, God. We're grateful to be able to continue studying uh, peacemaking and presuppositions and uh, during a Sunday school class that will admittedly uh, be, for some people, uh, maybe a little bit too academic or intellectually stimulating or whatever it is, uh, we pray that uh, it would nevertheless be helpful um, that, uh, that there could be good uh, truth and helpful truth mind from what we discussed towards the end of understanding our own presuppositions and knowledge claims and all the rest. Um, so please be with us uh, and make this a profitable, fruitful time, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I do apologize for being late. I'm very excited about today's class. Uh, if you'll recall, last time we reviewed... Um, well, before I do that, somehow this isn't up. Give me one second. We started the second half of this class, which was presuppositions, and we talked a little bit about what a presupposition was, why they're so important, and why uh, we should be folks who care quite a bit about uh, understanding presuppositions and uh, either being able to defend them or explain why they do not require a defense. And so today we are going to step into the first, I guess that was kind of the intro, and then we are going to now step into peacemaking and presuppositions, part one, properly speaking, and discuss what is knowledge. What is knowledge? And essentially... Knowledge is me going to lose my mind if I can't find this thing. Hold on one second. I gave it away. There it is. Knowledge is power. Yes, we're going to do a little bit better than that. But uh, yeah, knowledge is power. Body slamming someone is power. Okay? No, I'm kidding. All right. So... Um, all right, we talked about, again, we talked about presuppositions. We talked about why think critically about presuppositions. We should either know how to defend them or be prepared to articulate why they don't require defense. Um, and that conceptual foundations and presuppositions have an overwhelming influence on one's conclusions about particular issues. So you tell me what, where your starting points are. I can tell you the direction you're going to end in many cases. Um, any loose ends or questions from last time? Okay, so I want to move forward with what is knowledge. Now, I have to confess, I don't ever get to talk about this stuff. I have a degree in analytic philosophy, and I'm a pastor, not a professional philosopher, and so this is like dessert for me, okay? So what I'm going to try to do is give a very accessible lecture with questions. I don't want to just talk um, about knowledge from a philosophical perspective. Uh, and the first thing to ask is, what is knowledge? There are at least three kinds of knowledge, Okay. Three kinds of knowledge. One is procedural knowledge, how to. I know how to ride a bike, for example. I know how to change the oil in the car, for example. That's not the kind of knowledge that philosophers are primarily interested in or theologians, okay? There's a second kind of knowledge that theologians are much more uh, familiar with, uh, and they're not much more familiar with, they're more interested in, but it's still not what we're talking about, and that is knowledge of acquaintance. And this is knowledge of personal familiarity. So this is the difference that we make between knowing about God and knowing God. Knowing about 
my wife and knowing my wife. This is that knowledge of uh, knowing the the signs and the causes of a toothache and knowing what it's like to have a toothache. Okay, knowledge of direct acquaintance, direct uh, awareness, sometimes called knowledge de re, knowledge of an object or knowledge of a thing. And then finally, as we get to what we're talking about, propositional knowledge. Knowledge that something is true. I know that, fill in the blank with the truth claim. Okay? I know that, fill in the blank with the truth claim. And you might ask a question like this. Tyler, why are we talking about philosophy? Why don't we just look to the Bible? After all, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And uh, what I want to suggest is it's, it's fine to start here, but first of all, knowledge in the book of Proverbs does not just mean propositional knowledge like I just mentioned. Uh, but we are really talking about something that is a little bit in, in terms of the order of knowing, not in the order of preeminence of authority, but in the order of just coming to know things uh, is a little bit prior to the Bible period. So, for example, uh, reading the Bible, I'm, what I'm presupposing that Truth can be communicated in language, right? I'm presupposing that the external world exists. I'm presupposing that I can understand this language despite vast disagreement. There's a lot of things. And so we're talking about something that's really a fundamental human concept that the Bible itself presupposes. It presupposes this kind of understanding that you can understand what this is talking about. And so that's why we're not just doing Bible, quoting Bible verses here. Okay, because even if I, I said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, I could still ask, like, well, how do I, how do I know that? Right? So we're trying to ask the most more fundamental question about just the phenomena of knowledge, which Scripture, in the sense that we're talking about, presupposes that we have and that we can know, and that's the whole purpose of the Scripture, so that we can know the right things. Okay? Does everyone understand what I'm saying? So the reason I'm not going to a Bible verse to say what knowledge is, because we're talking about knowledge in a different kind of a way. A knowledge that in the order of knowing is a little bit more fundamental. Um, and so what I want to start out with is just a suggestion of knowledge. Someone, so since someone said, you know, what is knowledge? What would you say? Who's got a succinct definition of what knowledge is? Anybody? Going once, going twice. All right, well, why don't we start here? Why don't we start with true belief? So knowledge is I believe something, and it happens to be true. Okay, it is true. I am believing truly. I believe the cat is on the mat. The cat is, in fact, on the mat. Therefore, I know the cat is on the mat. Knowledge is true belief. Now, if I believed it and it was false, we would say I was mistaken. Okay? Um, if it was true, but I didn't believe it, there are a lot of true things. There's Something, there's a certain number of leaves outside. I don't have a belief about it. There's some, some fact there that God knows that I don't. Uh, it's, there's a truth there, but I don't believe it. We wouldn't call that knowledge either. We got, tr we got belief. We got truth. We smash them together. We get knowledge. Okay? Stands to reason. What, uh, what, do, you, what do you think about that? Knowledge understood as, as true belief. Everyone's just like, I was in my, like, my first philosophy. I was like, I know I'm going to say the wrong answer. No, kidding. So let me give you an example here. Uh, suppose I come to believe 
that um, it is raining in New York City because I misread the weather report. But as it turns out, it is raining in New York City. Okay? It is raining in New York City. I totally misread it. I totally misunderstood it. But nevertheless, it's still raining in New York City, and therefore I still have true belief. Okay? Who says that I knew, who says I had knowledge there? Who says I didn't have knowledge? Why? Okay. So, I mean, do what? It just happened. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Um, and so there are a variety of examples that you could give, but it seems that there are plenty of times where you might have a true belief that doesn't count as knowledge. Take the, the, the example of the math teacher who always wants you to show your work. And let's say I do have the problem and I do the work entirely wrong. Entirely wrong. In fact, let's say I multiply instead of divide, but then I do something wrong on the other end of things and I get the right answer. And I get the right answer. Okay. Um, do I know that, you know, the equation equals this? Probably not. Probably not. But I do have true belief. The answer is this. I got it right. So it seems as though there has to be something past just true belief in order to count as knowledge. Plato and Aristotle, enter Plato and Aristotle. They said, listen, you can't just have true belief. You have to add some element of justification to it. That is, you had good reason to believe it. Okay? You can't have just, it can't just have happened. Okay? You need to have justified true belief. That's what knowledge is. That's what knowledge is. This is called the tripartite analysis, just because there's three parts. There's a justification condition. Okay, I have to have some belief, some, some justification for why I actually believe this that substantiates my belief. It has to be true, and it has to actually be something I believe. Okay? justified true belief. Now, can we all agree that that sounds, that that fills in a pretty significant gap in from the just true belief analysis, justified true belief? Yes. Does everyone see why that's an important element to add or some kind of justification for it? Okay. So the, the best example is the math problem. The person who does all the math totally wrong and comes up with the right answer is right, but they're not, they're not justified in believing that even if they're right. Yes. No, we're only talking about propositional knowledge from here on out. That's the one that that we're all, yeah, we're talking about knowledge that of, yeah, that a particular truth is the case. So it says, knowing things is justified true belief. This is, this tripartite analysis is the understanding of knowledge that was accepted and utilized for hundreds and hundreds of years. Knowledge to know something is to have justified true belief. Until in 1963, there's a philosopher named Edmund Gettier who published in a, a volume called Analysis, uh, in a philosophical journal called Analysis, Edmund Gettier published a two-and-a-half-page essay that in two-and-a-half tiny little pages destroyed 
the tripart analysis of knowledge. And the way he did it is now are now called, very famously, the Gettier-style counterexamples. And I'm going to give you one from his paper and then another one because the second one he gives is too complicated to give. Uh, it involves too much uh, proposition, uh, too much uh, uh, um, truth functional logic. I don't want to try to recreate it, just be confusing. So here's what Gettier says. Remember, he's trying to give examples of someone who has justified true belief but still doesn't have knowledge. Here's what he says. Okay. Smith and Jones go for a job interview. In addition to his impressive resume, Jones tells Smith that he has 10 coins in his pocket. Okay. Smith, who is underqualified for the job anyways, comes to believe the following. The man who will get the job has 10 coins in his pocket. Okay. To his astonishment, it is actually Smith, him, who gets the job. Not Jones, who had the 10 coins in his pockets. In, in, in his pocket, excuse me. While eating lunch afterwards and celebrating his new role, he takes the change out of his pocket to find 10 coins in his pocket. He smiles and says, I knew the man who would get the job would have 10 coins in his pocket. Now, did he? Does that count as knowledge? Does that sound like knowledge? Okay. Why not? Glenn says no. Why not? You don't know why not, okay? Okay. Okay, good. So, But he was justified, certainly. I mean, the guy said, hey, I've got 10 coins in my pocket. He was a better qualified candidate. And it ended up the person who got the job had 10 coins in his pocket. Gettier says clearly... That's justified true belief. If that's not justified true belief, I don't know what it is, but that clearly that's not knowledge. Another example. We're driving out in the country. You know there are sheep in the area. I know there are sheep in the area. And you spot one from a distance off the road in plain daylight, no visual tricks going on, and you come to believe there's a sheep in the field. Pretty basic. But you get out to investigate because you want to touch this sheep. You want to pet this sheep. But as you get closer, you realize that what you thought was a sheep was only a white blanket. But lo and behold, under the tree over here in the field is a sheep. And so you yet again were correct. There is a sheep in the field. And if you had told your wife that, you could have said, See, honey, I knew there was a sheep in the field. Did he know there's a sheep in the field? Gettier says, clearly not. Clearly not. Were you justified? I have to say it. It's in the middle of daylight. I know there are sheep in the area. I see this thing. I want to go pet the sheep. My belief ends up being right. There is a sheep in the field. But it doesn't seem that my justification isn't connected the right way to the truth. Justified true belief, in other words, it seems doesn't actually count as knowledge. This has been universally accepted. So the epistemology community was busy doing a million other things until 1963 
Edmund Gettier publishes a two and a half page paper. It's free source. You can go read it online. I mean, it's literally two and a half pages. Um, and blew the whole thing up and everyone started scrambling in the field of epistemology to say, what on earth is knowledge then? It's not just true belief. We thought it was justified true belief. Edmund Gettier, who was known in philosophy for almost nothing else, he's like the greatest one-hit wonder, um, has single-handedly brought this thing down. What are we supposed to do? This is our field, the philosophy of knowledge. What are we supposed to say? And that is the introduction to strategies for rediscovering the nature of knowledge. So what I'm going to do, first of all, I'm going to pause. I'm going to ask for questions. Someone's got a question or a clarification or something. I want to make sure everyone stands how I have set this up before I march through uh, some, ex some suggestions for how to repair this. And at the end, try to draw, um, well, we'll see what I do uh, at the end. I guess we'll see if we get to the end, actually. But any questions about true belief not counting as knowledge or just or the get of your counterexamples? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes. So, so, so the uh, examples, of course, like the thought experiments that I gave, are silly. Uh, but they're supposed to be silly to highlight how clearly wrong the, the idea that uh, someone could say they could know something and that all that meant was justified true belief. Because all those little silly cases meet those conditions, but that person still doesn't have knowledge. And so they're asking, well, what does it mean to know? So now, we, so if you have the silly examples, it's like, well, what does it mean to know God exists then? What does it mean to know a mathematical theorem? What does it mean to know that water is H2O? So yeah, you have the little thought experiments to kind of show at the conceptual level that justified true belief just isn't cutting it for knowledge. And then you have to say, okay, um, then what is? What, what, what is knowledge? What is knowledge, right? Does that make sense? Does Gettier suggest? No, he only just, he, no. He, well, he, no, he sets off a bomb and says everyone else figure it out. He makes no suggestions. But that's what epistemology has done since 1963 is make suggestions. And so I want to make sure I'm setting this up right. This is a seminal essay in analytic philosophy. Edmund Gettier's piece, Is Justified True Belief Knowledge? You can go read it yourself if you want. Okay? Great question. Another question. Yes. Oh, wait. You're scratching your head. Question. Yeah. So true. So, I mean, so I don't want to nitpicky here. So... So all knowledge has to be true, or it's not knowledge, right? So truth is a necessary condition for knowing something. But what you're trying to, well, I think what you're trying to say is, in order for something to be genuine knowledge, there has to be some kind of proper connection between the reasons you believe something and the truth of it. Is that what you're saying? It certainly has to be accurate. Yeah, so yeah, what you're so the tension that you're feeling there is what all of these that I'm about to go through are going to try to put together. They're going to say, okay, like, why are this seems like such a these funny little things? Like, what's wrong here? Like, I feel like I'm getting tricked. I feel like I'm getting tricked. So they're all going to go through and they're going to take different approaches to mending the, the justified true belief. Okay, so the first set of strategies. I'll try to add one more condition. They say, got me, get here. 
You got us, okay? Justified true belief, not knowledge. Great job. No one's ever heard of you. You did, but you made your stamp. We're going to add a couple of, uh, we're going to add a condition that's going to try to save us here, okay? This is the JTB, Justified True Belief Plus, fill in the blank. So let's fill in the blank with three potential things here. Uh, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on all of them because some of them are much, much better than others. Um, and let me just say, you're not going to, I wouldn't even just listen to, to this. I would not even try to remember all of these because there's no way, okay? I, I would not try to remember all of these. The first one was Gilbert Harmon's famous suggestion, no false lemmas. What that means is that uh, you aren't believing it based on any false premises or beliefs. So he says, listen, there is this, when I look out there in the field and see the sheep and whatever, and it's really a blanket, you know, I'm really, implicitly, I'm thinking that is the sheep in the field, right? I didn't, maybe not saying that out loud, but I'm looking out there and uh, he says, listen, it's based on a false premise. It's based on a false belief. And so you can't have that be uh, the, the basis for knowledge. And so you have to have justified true belief that doesn't include any false premises. Well, one of the challenges with that is that, uh, well, here, let me, um, I'm going to give some examples and then we'll talk about the challenges. Okay. Okay. But so that's the first one. Justified true belief. But nothing that, uh, but, but it can't include any falsehoods, all right? Which you, you might think in your head, well, that might run into problems. Maybe how much, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Modalism, okay, so forget what that's called. Robert Nozick and early Ernest Sosa, here's what they say. They say, listen, um, they, they, they put this condition on knowledge, justified true belief plus either sensitivity or safety. And again, don't worry about that. But here's what they're trying to say. We need to have, knowledge needs to be justified true belief that you wouldn't have believed if certain things weren't present to deceive you. So if there wasn't a white blanket in the field, and when you looked out there, you never would have come to believe that in the first place, okay? Um, your belief needs to be sensitive, means it needs to respond to external uh, things changing. If I wake up every day and believe, and I just know I'm going to get in a car accident, the next day, I'm going to get in a car accident. I'm going to get in a car accident. I'm going to get in a car accident. Even if I don't own a car or even if I don't get in a car, they're saying like, listen, that can never count as knowledge. That one day where you happen to get in a car accident, you can't see. See, I knew it. I knew it. He said, they said, that's not sensitive belief. It doesn't ever change. It doesn't ever respond. He said, but you also have to have safe belief. He said the safety condition, and this is kind of what it developed into. This is what Ernest Sosa develops. He says the safety condition means you can't have these beliefs that have a really, really high probability of being wrong, and you just luck up and get right. You can't have a lottery belief where it's like, oh, you happen to get right. That's a very unsafe belief, right? It's a very risky belief. So they say, let's repair it. Let's have justified true belief. You've got to have reasons and stuff, but it's got to be safe, and it's got to be sensitive. Okay, it's got to be sensitive to the environment. That's modalism, okay? What about a third alternative? This is Alvin Goldman. Uh, and Alvin Goldman says, listen, what you have to do is, you, is justify true belief, but you have to be able to rule out relevant other possibilities that it could be. So let me give you an example. You see someone talking on an iPhone, and you conclude it's an iPhone 7. Okay, you're looking at it. You have, maybe you have an iPhone, right? Maybe you know what an iPhone looks like in general, 
you're looking at someone talking. Uh, what, what Goldman says is, listen, okay, you've got, it's, it's not like, there's not strobe lights going off or something. It's a normal environment. I see someone conclude they're talking on an iPhone 7. What he would say is, okay, you got to have justified true belief, but you also presumably need to have some reason for thinking it's not an iPhone 6, right? He says you need to be able to take these relevantly close alternatives and, and, uh, and rule them out in order to be able to actually make a claim to knowledge, okay? That's what he says. Um, and so but let me just give a couple challenges for each of these, okay? Oh, wait, I don't want to ruin my... Um, here, I'll give a couple challenges, and then I'm going to uh, I'll give another thought experiment. So what about the no-false lemmas? Well, the problem is this. Everyone believes falsehoods. Everyone believes falsehoods, right? Everyone believes false things, unfortunately, right? If we knew which one were our false beliefs, we would hopefully seek to you know, correct that or not, not hold those beliefs. Uh, but the problem is actually maybe John, uh, John, not maybe, as John pointed out, the sheep example, pretty straightforward what my false belief is, okay? My belief was essentially that what looked like a white thing in the field was the sheep. And even though there was a sheep in the field, it wasn't the thing I was looking at, okay? Sounds silly. But, but uh, it's not so clear what it means for something to be based on a false belief if we're dealing with something that's very conceptually challenging. For example, you might have someone who is very liberal, very conservative, and therefore uh, ha on some levels have mutually exclusive views, okay? So, and I'm defining logically mutually exclusive, meaning one has to be right, one has to be wrong, but nevertheless share the same conclusion. One of them knows, one of them knows either what they're claiming is true or false, okay? Um, and same thing, you could have theologically the same thing. Uh, the, the question is, how much does the, the, all those people have false beliefs, and all those beliefs somehow contribute to a tr true conclusion, right? They enter into some matrix of beliefs together that form, you know, all these, all, all these different ideas and conclusions about theology, about science, about um, philosophy. And one of the questions is like, okay, but how, if everyone has false beliefs and we can still get to the right answer from false beliefs, um, like what degree of connectedness, like how close does it have to be tied to the false belief for it to not count as knowledge anymore? Okay. If I make a mistake way, 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 way down in an equation, but it's a really minimal one that's still, then it does not enough to affect the answer. Does that still count? Doesn't seem like it does. Um, if I have a if, if I have a false view of uh, in let's say I have a false view of inerrancy. Let's say I believe I hold to something like the critical inerrancy inscribed in like the Chicago Statement. But suppose I held to like a, a limited inerrancy, where I believe that the Bible was um, factual in particular things, like claims about God and salvation and empirically verifiable facts alone. Okay. I might start there, and I might reason to a true conclusion, something like God is all-powerful. Why? Based on my understanding of the Bible. But I would say that person's understanding is wrong. But I would say that they. But I say I would still say they know that God is all-powerful. It's just not clear how ingrained or how it, it, it sounds good on the front end. But when you ask a bunch of questions and you take out sheep analogies. It's not exactly clear what it means that a conclusion can't have any false beliefs or premises anywhere in the reasoning. It seems like all of us have a lot of false conclusions, false beliefs that somehow enter into the matrix of our thinking. I'm going to skip modalism and relevant alternatives to enter what, after Edmund Gettier's famous counterexample, 
Saul Kripke steps in and gives the mo another devastating counterexample to all of these. Here it is. Now, Saul Kripke, by the way, probably one of the most brilliant. He's probably the most brilliant philosopher alive. So brilliant that he struggles to even interact with people. He's Jewish, believe it or not. Uh, Jewish philosopher uh, has made, done incredible work in philosophy of language, logic, and math. And Saul Kripke gives us a thought experiment that is uh, that really challenge all, challenges all of these and is now the gold standard to which if you're going to make an attempt at articulating what knowledge is, you have to deal with his example called Fake Barn County. So here's the thought experiment. Uh, this county had these lovely barns, okay? Countryside, it was a kind of a rural county. Had a bunch of barns. Everyone loved to, uh, how am I doing with my time? Oh, good. Okay. Hold on, wait. That's, okay, oh, this is good, this is good. Uh, and so people like to drive through this county to see the barns. They like to take an afternoon ride, and these barns are all colorfully painted and all the rest of it, okay? And, um, but there's, something happens, unfortunately. There's a huge fire. There's a huge fire, and many of the barns are burned down. And the mayor of the town has an idea because he said, this is going to be bad for business. People come over here just to go look at our barns. So his idea is this. What we're going to do is we're going to put up a bunch of facade barns, fake barns, okay? Make them look nice, maybe a little shell, maybe a little, we'll put some paint on them. Whatever the case may be, we're going to have some fake barns, um, and the vast majority of the barns have burned down, okay? Let's just say for the sake of example, there are 10 real barns left and 90 fake barns have been erected in the barns that have burned down place. Okay, here's what Saul Kripke says. Well, suppose I'm riding along in fake barn county. In the middle of the day, my eyesight works well. I turn to the right, and I think, oh, there's a red, I'm looking at a red barn. He says, it's hard to imagine being more justified than that. He said, it's hard to imagine if anything counts as knowledge. And let's say that the person is actually looking at one of the barns that didn't get burned down. They are. He says, listen, they're looking at a real barn, a real red barn. They're 20 feet away. All they're claiming to know is that I'm looking at a red, there's a red barn right there. I'm going to go back and tell my friends. There's a red barn in Barn County. What's the challenge here? What is Krippy going to say? Why does that, why, what, what's he going to say about why that person doesn't have knowledge? Huh? It's inauthentic. Why? Because he doesn't know what any better. Our poor fellow doesn't realize that all these barns have been rearranged and rebuilt. He can't tell the difference between the fake barns and the real barns. That's the whole point of having reconstructed them so it's good for business. In other words, if he had turned out his left window, he would have made the same conclusion about a blue barn, except he would have been wrong. Because the vast majority of the barns aren't real. They're fake. 
They're fake. He would have had the exact same experience looking out the left window and just concluded, let's just pray. Perhaps there's another red barn on the left side. Maybe they like red barns in Red Barn County. I don't know. I'm making this part of it up. Same exact visual experience. He just happened to not look to the left. And maybe when he drove a mile up the road, he said, oh, look, there's a blue barn. But he was wrong about that one. Then he went to the next one. Oh, there's a green barn. Nope, it's just a little veneer, a little barn veneer. No, nothing there, not a real barn. So maybe he gets, he has seven wrong beliefs, but finally he gets to this red barn and concludes, oh, there's a red barn here. Does he know? Philosophers generally agree that because that, because the environment is so risky, you are almost doomed to be duped. So if you, can, if you happen to conclude that you see a barn there, it's because you got lucky. You got lucky. Because everyone else driving behind you, looking out the windows and making similar conclusions, uh, is going to be wrong. They're going to be right about, I uh, see something that maybe looks like a barn, but they're all going to be wrong. They're all going to be wrong. So what does, so does, does that example make sense? And again, I understand that for some people this is like, <sighs> I get it. Uh, but, but the point here is to show that because this is such an unsafe environment to form accurate beliefs in, the only way you can really come up with a, a true belief is getting lucky. Okay? In the inability to... to, to, to uh, uh, um, Uh, yes, thank you. In the, in, the, in the inability to distinguish the fake barns, fake barns from the facade barns. Okay. All right. Qu- questions about that? Someone ask a question because I know not everyone is like, oh yeah, it makes perfect sense, and I don't have a single question. Yes, sir. How is justification defined? Well, that's a great question. That's next. That's going to be the next Sunday school class. Yeah, yeah. Justification is the other large part of epistemology. Yeah, what counts as evidence? What is justification? How do we have justification? Yeah, but but for now, justification just means a good reason to believe. I mean, hey, I'm sitting here looking at uh, a strapping young man who shot a 79 the other day, Abiel Jackson. Surely, uh, in plain light, with 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 eyes that, as as far as I'm aware, work well, I'm justified in believing. I'm looking at a person here, right? So similarly, if I'm driving down the road, now, don't get me wrong, if I was driving down the road and there was a smoke grenade that had gone off in a war zone and strobe lights, well, hey, maybe I'm not justified in concluding, you know, it, what, what, what seems to be the case is the case visually. But in such a case, like a fake barn county case, surely when I'm driving by, I mean, when we mill the day, I'm looking out, I'm seeing something, uh, I'm saying, hey, there's a barn, it happens to be a barn, it's just harder, it's hard to understand how you could get any more of a justification than that. Any good reason to believe that's also true, okay? And notice, I you know, I'm not sitting there. Uh, uh, yeah, well, we'll talk about that in a second. Another, any other great question? Another question about the fake Barn County case? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. That is correct. Anything else? What else? Yes. Uh, yes, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get to a more realistic scenario of an unsafe environment. 
But I'll just tell you the one that always comes up is in philosophy and epistemology is the lottery problem. It's the person who knows that it's going to stop on 63. And it does. No, no, no. In the thought experiment, that's the first time. So if I say there's this big wheel and I just know it's going to stop on 63. <laughs> See? Well, why did you think that? Well, I mean, I think I just, it felt like, it, this felt like a 63 spin. Okay? Uh, the lottery problem, how much luck can be involved? I mean, so yeah, I'm just spinning a wheel. I went to my kids' carnivals the other day and we, there was a wheel getting spun with numbers. What if there's only three numbers? Can I take a good guess? What if there's only two? How much randomness can be a part of it? Um, but again, at this point, we're still trying to just understand what knowledge is before we're like, oh, yeah, how does this help me in my job? It's like we're not even quite there yet. Like what kind of – are they going to like – I'm going to go into an office that has like a fake desk tomorrow or something. That's not what I'm talking about. But we're just talking about – but if we, we're, if we can't get our head around just what even we're talking about. Then when I just say, hey, you say you know that God exists, what does that even mean? We're, we're, right now, we don't even have the – we're not there yet to say like what, what it means to know in general. Whether it's a fake barn or or that Abiel's sitting here in front of me, we're just right. But it's just it's switching the example to an it's just another unsafe environment where you get where the only reason how you that you can get be right is luck, right? The only way you can be right is luck. So yeah, I'm ta I'm taking away I'm ta trying to take away fake barns because I understand that's bizarre. But you you can create any environment where um, where uh, things are unsafe, where there's high high probability, super risky belief, where someone is ends up being ends up being. Or hey, you know maybe you're in a museum and you see something, you don't realize that the whole museum because they were scared that things are going to get broken. They're all replicas of artifacts, not the actual artifacts. Like oh yeah, there's the Mona Lisa. And actually, we switched all of them out. This is fake. Like someone, this is a computer drawing. Um, you wouldn't know that, but you, hey, you stumble upon the one that they didn't actually replace. Here it is. This is the whatever. You're right. You're exactly right. You got lucky, though. You would have believed that about any of them. It's unsafe, okay? Enter Alvin Plantinga, who is the greatest living Christian philosopher. Richard Swinburne might have a problem with that, but it'd be too bad for him. Alvin Plantinga, whew, man, Alvin Plantinga is just out of this world, he takes up fake barn country and he says, listen, I know the answer. I know the answer to this. He says, um, what you have to have is justified true belief with properly functioning cognitive faculties. So you can't have, you can't be in a delusion, right? You can't be like hallucinating the right thing. You have to have properly functioning cognitive faculties, visual, whatever, in an environment conducive for their success. It has to be an environment that is conducive for them to succeed in what they are believing. And he says, listen, when I go through fake Barn County, I am not in such an environment. I am in such an environment where the beliefs that I am going to conclude uh, are almost certainly going to be false. He says, you have to be able to have properly functioning cognitive faculties, but they have to be in an environment that are conducive for success. Now, the pushback to Plantinga, and one of the reasons we're going we're gonna, gonna to give this objection and move on is, uh, in fact, well, what would, do you know, what would you say? 
What would you say to that? I know this is everyone's first trip to the pumpkin patch here, but like, if you're hearing that, initially sounds like a, and it is in one sense. I'm not saying it's it's wrong, but what 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 might you say to Planago when he says such and such properly functioning in an environment conducive for for successful belief formation? What would you say? Okay, tell me more. What is that environment meaning? What? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So you might look. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we'll, let me, I'll, let me just fast track that just for the sake of time and just say, um, you might ask Planaga, like, how conducive is conducive? What if, what if we, what if we, uh, we start changing the percentages of fake barn counting? Hmm? At what point does it become conducive, like, to my success? Let's say it's 50-50 fake barn facades to barns. Now, is that an environment conducive to success? What about 60-40? What about 65-35? The objection to Planago here is, listen, there's no non-arbitrary environment, okay, that counts as conducive. There's no or non-arbitrary place to cut off, like, how much luck can be in there, okay? So it's, it's, it's true, but it's, in, well, it sounds true. And it, of course, in one sense, it's obviously true. You're not going to form true, uh, you know, visual beliefs in rooms where have smokes and strobes light. That's not conducive. Um, but the question is, what, what, what counts as, as conducive exactly? And we're, that's going to crop up again one more time. Okay, so that, that kind of ends the justified true belief plus X approach. Okay, oh, sorry, I'm not hitting this thing. All right, but lastly, uh, no, not lastly, but lastly for today, uh, the, these philosophers say, listen, the justified true belief plus adding a condition for all of these reasons that we've already articulated, it's dead. We got to take a different approach. The justified tripartite analysis cannot be saved. Too bad. Boo-hoo. We're going to have to take a different approach. A couple of different approaches here. One is from Roderick Chisholm. And my, the metaphysics professor in college did his doctorate under Roderick Chisholm. And he raises the bar of justification. He says, no, justified true belief is knowledge. He said, in the, none of these cases, people have enough justification for their belief. Okay? There's not enough justification. There's not enough. Um, and so what you have to have is an is a extremely high degree of justification. That, he, that Chisholm says is not present in any of these kind of examples, whether it's the Gettier or the Saul Kripke, thank Barn County. Um, in the last minute here, what, what, might you, what might you say to someone, given the nature of the examples, who said, no, we, we need even more justification than, uh, than what we've, than we see in these examples to count as knowledge? What might you say? Yeah. Okay. Okay. But what if, so what if I, okay, so yeah, maybe I need to examine it more. Uh, but hey, if it's plain light of day outside and I'm look, I mean, hey, right here, I see Abiel Jackson. I mean, are you going to tell me that I need to examine my senses more? Maybe 
Maybe, maybe. So let's go with that and just conclude this. What you're going to end up with, and we'll pick up here next time, is if you raise the bar of justification so high, you end up with the threat of skepticism. Can you really know what's right in front of you? I don't know. What if you're a brain in a vat being stimulated by all these chemicals to hallucinate all these things? Uh, How much justification could you possibly need to make conclusions? If you raise the bar for what counts as knowledge all the way up to something like certainty, not possibly wrong, it might end up that we know precious few things. Okay? It's not possible for me to be wrong because my justification is so strong. Two plus two equals four. Not possible that I'm wrong there. Piano axioms of arithmetic. Boom. Necessary. So I've got these things. But if I raise the bar of justification so high to try to save this, it seems like we're going to risk dying on the altar of skepticism and saying, what can we really know then? I mean, gosh, if you're saying I can't believe that Abiel's sitting in front of me, what about my belief that E equals MC squared is true? What about my belief in aesthetic truths, moral truths? We're going to be really lost there. So you, if you, the higher you raise the bar of justification for what's necessary for knowledge, the more the skeptic says, see, they can't really know anything. Because you can't, that sounds like a really high bar to achieve. And so we have to conclude uh, this Sunday, this teaching, this, I guess, hour here. I didn't get, I almost got through um, with juries out on what we even mean when we're saying what is knowledge. All right, so thank you for staying along with the ride. Okay, come back next time. The ride will come to a conclusion. Uh, But please come ask me your questions. And I promise. uh, Well, yeah, come ask me your questions and I'll I'll, I'll just say I'll promise I'll answer them. Let's uh, thanks for a couple extra minutes. Let's pray. Um, God, in a in a teaching full of things that sound wonky and weird um, and and a bit abstract, admittedly, um, I pray that these would be the uh, these would help us think through underlying fundamental things that, frankly, no one ever thinks about because they're presupposed. Um, and, and, and though it sounds, again, so abstract and, and so heady and ivory tower-ish in some cases that um, you would help us at the very least give us a sense of humility when we consider these things, interact with others. And um, Lord, we do pray for our worship service. It would be pleasing and honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen.